Well, I just love the reading of God's Word, don't you? Especially like that. (laughs) And I just love the book of Acts. And that's where we're at tonight in chapter 2. If you have a Bible or uh, your Bible app, you can go there, pull the uh, study guide out of your worship folder. The book of Acts is an awesome, awesome book, lots lots of action. We see God at work. And uh, the writer, Luke, is telling his readers how the very first Christian church got started, right there in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, when you heard that read, if this day of Pentecost sounds to you like it marks the the beginning of a brand new era, well, you're right. (laughs) It certainly was. Before we explore that more, let's call to mind what we've learned so far in our study of Acts. We've seen the risen Jesus, right, directing his 11 remaining disciples to wait in Jerusalem, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're going to need the Spirit's empowerment if they were going to be his witnesses and spread his gospel to the world. So we've seen that. We also saw moments later... Jesus ascending back up into heaven to be with his Father once again, leaving the earth and placing his mission squarely in the hands of those perplexed men. We saw that his remaining band of followers, 120 in all, went and did what he said. They gathered together in a home in Jerusalem where they waited and they prayed. And they waited some more, and they prayed. And we saw Peter, Peter the fisherman uh, turned disciple of Jesus, taking the reins of leadership and standing up one day in the midst of that group and guiding a process for replacing Judas. And if you remember, just a month and a half earlier, Peter was the guy who, when the heat was on, denied that he even knew Jesus, right? Now here he was, stepping up to lead the whole group, and we're going to see him acting in that capacity more and more in this book of Acts. And I think knowing Peter's story should give us hope, don't you think? Should give us hope that God can use our failures, our shameful failures, to humble us and to transform our lives into something beautiful that magnifies Jesus and and brings him glory. And so now, with, with the full contingent of all 12 leaders in place once again and with Jesus' words no doubt still ringing in their ears, the group waits expectantly for something to happen. Something's going to happen and something happened. I imagine for many of us when we read about this day, the day of Pentecost, when we read about this dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day, our first thought is Well, is that for us now? Should we, here in the 21st century, be seeking a similar experience? Isn't that where your mind goes? That's where mine goes. But before we attempt to answer that, let's look a little deeper first into Luke's account. And let's see exactly what happened on that very important day. This passage of Scripture, Acts 2, in the first 13 verses, breaks down into three sections. First, there's the the setting which is quite significant, and then there's the event that had been promised for centuries, and then there are the various responses that different people had to the event. 
the setting is significant because it says that this happened, this event happened on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And I've mentioned this before, but, but that was one of three feasts, three annual feasts on the Jewish calendar when Jewish people from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to part- participate in the festivities there. And so this outpouring of the Holy Spirit just happened to occur on a day when there were all kinds of visitors from different places and they were all in town. Does that sound like the event was planned to you? Sure does to me. But I want to remind you that God always has a plan. He always has a plan. He always has a purpose. He's always working His plan to perfection and He was here. The sovereign God was masterfully aligning key events in his plan with key dates on the Jewish calendar so that his ultimate purpose would be accomplished. And we're going to see that. I don't know if those first disciples realized the significance of all of this in that moment at the time, but but we can certainly look back now and know it without a doubt. So on that day of Pentecost, which means 50th, it was 50 days exactly since the resurrection of Jesus. On that day, Jesus' followers were all hanging out together in someone's apparently very large home. 120 people were gathered. And then things got interesting. Verse 2 says, suddenly, like it came out of nowhere, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I read that and I say, wow. 120 people gathered in a big room. All of a sudden, the the sound of a howling, violent windstorm fills the room. Now, no actual wind, just the sound, it says. And if that wasn't startling enough, at the same time, a fire breaks out overhead and starts dividing into smaller flames, which come to rest on each person in the room. So the sound of wind and the visual of fire, so this was a multi-sensory experience for these people, And it signified the manifest presence of God with them. Wind and fire in Scripture often used as images to depict the manifest presence of God. God was in the room. God was in the room. It says everyone in there was filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately they all start praising God out loud, it says, in other tongues. Which we come to see refers to known languages that were spoken in different places in the world. So that's how Luke describes the event. He doesn't give much commentary. He just kind of lays it out. Here's what happened. Peter's going to provide some commentary later on. So we see the setting, and then that was the event, and then we see the responses. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, probably the sound of both that mighty rushing wind and also the sound of all of these voices speaking different languages. At that sound, the multitude came together, kind of uh, converging on this house, and they were what? 
bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all of these who are speaking Galileans how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language so we learn that the, the, the people who live nearby the neighbors and as well as the folks from other places who are in town for this festival they hear this commotion and they're intrigued and they begin moving towards the house probably thinking that's strange what's going on over there Verse 12 kind of sums it up, says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? (laughs) What is this? But others, mocking, said, Well, they are filled with new wine. (laughs) So some differing reactions, right? That's always the case when God is at work. It's always a variety of responses and reactions. Some of these folks were bewildered, some amazed, and some were making fun mocking those folks were saying well these these people are drunk that's what's going on here they've consumed too much alcohol they're they're a bit tipsy they're inebriated let them just sober up and everything will get back to normal next weekend we're going to see peter who is fast becoming that group's spokesperson we're going to see him seize the moment and stand up and 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 give an explanation for what was going on to kind of counter this charge that they were all drunk and it's going to be fascinating to see so that's what we see the the setting and the event and then the responses but let's back up a bit and see if we can add some context some background to this event so we can understand it more fully in light of god's big plan okay And we'll also try to apply some learnings to our own church and our own situation today. So let me make a few observations here. Number one, know this, that both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus, when he was here, had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. Understand that this event, this Pentecost event, came as the fulfillment of a promise. Next week we're going to hear... Peter, quote, this promise from the Old Testament to the crowd. It's from Joel, Old Testament scripture, Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward, this is God speaking, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So that's why... Pentecost is sometimes called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's going to stand up and say, this that you see is that. (laughs) This is God making good on a centuries-old promise spoken through his prophets. Here it is in another place. This is from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Jesus, excuse me, the Lord speaking again, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is found many places in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus came on the scene, he reiterated God's promise many times. You're probably familiar with this passage from John 14, Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, I'm going to ask the Father... And he will give you another helper. That's the Greek word 
paraclete, parakletos, paraclete, another helper, another helper like me is what he was saying, to be with you forever, even who? The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, what does it say? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's in the person of the Spirit. And we saw this a few weeks ago from Acts 1. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days, ten days to be exact from when he spoke those words. All of these promises looked forward to what God was going to do on this particular day of Pentecost. All these promises were fulfilled on this day. And to me, it's obvious that all the different terms that were used in these promises, the pouring out of the Spirit, the putting His Spirit within people, baptizing people with the Spirit, all of those are referring to the same event, Pentecost. Now, you with me so far? Okay. Know that prior to that day, prior to Pentecost, things had been different. That's why Pentecost was such a big deal. The Holy Spirit had operated differently under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Number two, under the Old Covenant, the Spirit only came upon selected people for a special purpose for a specific time and a limited time. Did you know that? It was different under the Old Testament. I like living under the New Covenant, don't you? This is true, and it's why we read King of King David praying this once, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Have you ever heard that? He knew that could happen under the covenant that he lived in, the, the old covenant, because of his sins. We read statements like this in the Old Testament. Numbers 24.2, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. We read in Judges 11.29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. For Samuel 16.14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So the Holy Spirit's ministry to, to God's people just operated differently in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. It was temporary, it was mission-specific, it was selective, and that's one reason why the writer of Hebrews would declare that the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Because now all true believers in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. And His indwelling of us is permanent, not temporary. We don't need to pray like David prayed. Oh Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He won't. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. I praise God for that. Here's a third observation. And we saw this. Receiving the power of the Spirit would be necessary for Jesus' disciples to fulfill His mission of evangelizing the world. Luke 24, 49, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, that's the Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
guys, you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I'm calling you to do. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. It's going to be hard. We live in an empire that, that worships the emperor. This message is not going to be necessarily well received by everyone. You're going to need the Spirit for boldness and, and perseverance and endurance in this mission. And we saw that famous verse from a couple weeks ago, but you will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let me ask you this question, New Life. Given this reality, do we today need to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, some experience of His outpouring before we launch out our mission out east in Pataskala, to start up that new campus and start reaching people for Jesus. Do we need to wait on the outpouring of the Spirit? My answer would be no. Pentecost already happened. The new covenant has already been ratified by the shed blood of Jesus. The Spirit has already been poured out on God's people. We have the Spirit. Now, yes, we need to follow His lead. Yes, we need to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and directing us. Yes, we need to walk in step with His, desi His desires. And yes, sometimes that does involve waiting. But we don't wait for Him to come and indwell us, right? He already does. We have the Spirit. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I think this next observation is important for us to understand too. So stay with me. Number four, the Spirit's arrival on Pentecost was the first of a four-stage outpouring of the Spirit on different groups of people. Have you heard that before? I'm asking you to study this on your own and see if you believe that I'm rightly dividing the word of truth here, okay? Because what I believe we see in the book of Acts is our Lord's recognition of the different Groups, the different socio-ethnic groups that existed among the peoples of the earth of that day. And he was choosing to carry out his plan of giving the Holy Spirit in accordance with that reality. Remember, God himself had created the distinction between his chosen people, the Jews, and non-Jews, whom we call Gentiles, or sometimes referred to as the nations, Certainly in that first century culture, those distinctions were very prominent. People walked around, you knew who was a Jew and who was a Gentile. But we also know that it was always God's plan to create one people, right? One new, unified people of God in Christ where those distinctions would be minimized and ultimately become insignificant. And so I believe a careful reading of this book of Acts shows how the Lord caused four distinct groups of people to have similar Pentecost experiences when the gospel first reached them, so as to leave no doubt that they were all on equal footing in Christ. There were no second-class Christians. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let me show you what I mean. We just read the account here in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit being poured out on who? The Jews. It says that. Devout Jewish people. 
Several chapters later in Acts chapter 8, after Philip had preached in Samaria, we see the Samaritans. Now, that was a kind of a hybrid race, half Jew, half Gentile, uh, despised by the Jews of that day, but God loved them as well. Aren't you glad of that? He sent someone to them with the gospel. Here's what it says in Acts 8.14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. That's the folks in Samaria, that they might what? Receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, that's Peter and John, laid their hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This guy named Simon saw some supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit's outpouring on the Samaritans, perhaps them speaking in tongues. And he said, give me this power also. (laughs) I want to be able to do that too, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So you have the Jews having the Spirit poured out on them in Acts 2. You have the Samaritans having the Spirit poured out on them in Acts 8. Then when we get to Acts chapter 10, you've got Peter in the house of Cornelius preaching the gospel to who? Gentiles. In Acts 10.44, while Peter was still saying these things, he's there in Cornelius' home preaching the gospel, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Gentiles now. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You see what the Lord's doing here? He's giving the Holy Spirit progressively to these different groups of people. Later, in reporting back to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who were skeptical, they were still wary of Gentile converts, Peter would reinforce this equal treatment that God was giving all of these new Christians. Acts 11, 17, he said this to them, If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us, talking about Jews, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Because they saw the same evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that third group. And then there's a fourth group, a final group we see in Acts, hearing about Jesus And then having this supernatural experience associated with the outpouring of the Spirit is a group known as the the disciples of John the Baptist. They were kind of an interesting group of people who had heard John the Baptist preach and and talk about repentance of sin, and then they went back home and their knowledge wasn't complete at that point. And God sent them also some people with the message of the gospel. And in Acts 19 it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism, John the Baptist. 
And John said, John, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So four distinct outpourings of the Holy Spirit on four distinct groups of people. If you see this, raise your hand. Okay, nearly half of you. If I'm reading the Bible correctly, then what I see here is God in His grace giving similar experiences of baptism in the Holy Spirit, unmistakably evidenced by speaking in tongues, to these four different groups as each of them came into contact with the gospel of Jesus so that no one could claim that God was playing favorites. And everyone would understand that God is forming one body from many different people groups, one multicultural family bound together in the Holy Spirit. We can see that everybody's covered here. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, which were kind of hybrid, and then this unique remnant of Old Testament saints who had heard the preaching of John the Baptist. That covers everybody in the world. And I look at that and I say, how gracious of God to do it that way, giving each group unmistakable proof, evidence that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. Now, certainly, we took note of this, number five. The Spirit's coming was accompanied by supernatural manifestations, particularly speaking in tongues. And I know this is why you're here tonight, perhaps. This is what you're hoping that we'd park on for a bit tonight. So let's pause and let's ask some questions here, okay? What exactly is speaking in tongues? And first, I just want to acknowledge that there are many different views on this topic in the body of Christ, right? You know that. There's kind of an intramural debate among Christians about this. So just know that good, godly people disagree on this topic, have different views. Second, and I think sadly, this issue has divided the body of Christ more than it should, and it doesn't need to. Third, back in 2011, I preached through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It took a year and a half, and I dealt with this topic much more in depth, especially when we got into chapters 12 and 13 and 14. So if this is intriguing to you, I'd say go online and listen to those sermons from back then. So I'm going to give you my view on this, okay? It's best I understand the whole teaching of Scripture, the gift of tongues is the special ability given and enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak a language that you didn't know. A language that was unknown to the person who's speaking it. Certainly that's what's described here in Acts chapter 2, right? People from other countries who were in town for the festival heard Galilean Jews praising God, not in the Koine Greek language that, that most people spoke, but in their own regional dialect. Verse 8, dialectos is the word, dialect, our own native tongue. 
So in this instance, speaking in tongues was the supernaturally given ability to speak a known human language that was foreign to the speaker and that they never used Rosetta Stone to learn. <laughs> it was just given to them, the ability to speak a, a foreign language. And that's why the crowd was so bewildered. They were thinking, how can this be? Where did these guys, these Galileans, implication, uneducated Galileans, get this ability on moment's notice to speak our language? So I believe that this definition that I've given you here encompasses all of the various expressions of tongues mentioned in the Bible, which brings us to a second question, number two, are the tongues in Acts that we've been reading about the same as the tongues Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. So here's where, as my dad would say, the cheese gets all the more binding. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about speaking in tongues in a way that makes it sound like it's something other than speaking a known human language. Plus, he calls it a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit distributes to some Christians, but not to all Christians, 1 Corinthians 12.30. So how do we reconcile that with what we see here in Acts? So here's my view. I believe that in this age, the age that we live in, this age of grace, speaking in tongues is, is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives to some Christians, and it can have multiple expressions, at least three. So stay with me on this. Sometimes we see in the scriptures the gift of speaking in tongues, what's called the missionary expression. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. This is the ability given to some Christians to speak a foreign language that they never went to school to learn and they didn't even understand themselves. God giving people this ability to speak a foreign language, Swahili or whatever, so they could communicate the gospel to people who speak and know that language. That's what happened in Acts 2, right? If you research it online, you will find that there are reports of this still happening in our world to this day. Very cool instances of people in other remote parts of our world being given supernaturally the ability to speak the language of the native people there so they could hear about Jesus in their language. Still going on. This is the missionary expression of the gift of tongues. I believe there's another expression of the gift of tongues, sometimes called the devotional expression. This is where, where certain Christians are given a special ability to speak in some unknown, perhaps angelic kind of prayer language as an aid to their devotional life. It's a special prayer language that some Christians have and they use when they praise God. 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Listen now. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Verse 14, same chapter. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So this is different from the first expression. Do you see that? That one was given for the benefit of lost people. This one is more for the person who is praying and for the Lord. 
I believe this is the expression of the gift of tongues that Paul so severely limited in the worship gathering like this because it does little to benefit anybody other than the one who's praying in tongues. It can be very confusing to people. It was meant to be a private, personal prayer language. But then we also see in that same chapter a third expression of the gift of tongues, sometimes called by scholars the revelatory expression. This is when a Christian is given a message from God that's meant for a particular congregation, and he then speaks that message in an unknown tongue, and it is then interpreted by somebody else so that the whole congregation can hear and understand and benefit from it. 1 Corinthians 14.9, so with yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So this third expression of the gift of tongues seems to be different from the other two. It was meant to communicate a message to the church, a message of blessing, of correction perhaps, of instruction to a local body of believers in such a way that they know it's from God. Like this is from the Lord. And it must be interpreted, said Paul, if it's going to function like God intended it to function. And we've experienced that here on occasion. Someone given a word for the church in an unknown tongue and someone else interpreting it. It's been pretty rare in our history, but it has happened. Again, this is my understanding that there are at least three expressions of the gift of tongues. And I want to admit I could be wrong on this. I might be wrong. I don't think so. And if I am, I'm in good company because there's a lot of people who hold to this view. How about this next question? Is speaking in tongues the sign or the evidence that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? And this is where I believe some damage has been done in the body of Christ. I'm going to call this view the old-style Pentecostal view that thankfully seems to be losing steam and going out of vogue in recent years. The most extreme form of this view holds that speaking in tongues is a sign of true salvation. Those folks would say, you want to know if you're saved? You speak in tongues. Never spoken in tongues? You're not saved. That's an unscriptural view, and it's caused a lot of angst. But even the more moderate view that the, that the way you can tell someone is filled with the Spirit is that they speak in tongues, I believe that's also not scriptural. It creates two classes of Christians, doesn't it? The haves and the have-nots. It's led to endless hours of praying over the uninitiated, praying over them that they might receive the gift, receive the gift, receive the gift. Feeding them starter phrases to kind of prime the pump and get them going and this, too, as you can imagine, has created a lot of angst in Christians who were just never able to do it, who were open to it, who wanted it, were never able to speak in tongues. As a result, they despaired of ever living a spirit-filled Christian life because they were taught that the evidence that you're filled with the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And as a pastor, I've talked with many people through the years who were overjoyed to learn that this teaching is not true. Yes, those newly saved people in Acts were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in tongues. There's no denying that. But it's important to note that 
that particular manifestation is noticeably lacking in other key New Testament passages that talk about being filled with the Spirit, most notably Ephesians 5.18, where Paul wrote this, Do not get drunk on wine. It's good advice, right? Instead, which leads to debauchery, all kinds of bad things. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There it is. Speaking to one another in tongues. No, that's not what it says. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, that's interesting. Here are the universal evidences of being filled with the Spirit. Having a song in your heart. Being grateful to God for everything in your life having a submissive spirit towards other people, noticeably absent is speaking in tongues. Why? Because that's not for every spirit-filled believer. These are the marks of spirit-filled living for every Christian on the planet. How about this fourth one? Is Pentecost for today? Was Acts 2 meant to be Duplicated? Was it meant to be a repeatable experience down through the centuries? Is Pentecost for today? And I would say, well, it depends on what somebody's talking about. If you're talking about speaking in tongues, is speaking in tongues for today? Many Bible scholars and pastors believe that the Spirit still gives that gift to Christians today, and I join them in that belief. I believe that. I have friends and family members who claim that they have this gift from God, and, and I don't doubt them. You probably have friends too, or maybe you are one. Because scripturally speaking, I don't believe the perfect has come yet, which is when 1 Corinthians 13.8 says that tongues is going to cease, that the gift of tongues is going to go away. I think that phrase, the perfect, refers to the time when Jesus comes back, and he hasn't come yet. I used to hold a different position, but I, I know where I land now. You're going to have to form your own conviction about this, okay? That's where I'm at. But how about the whole Pentecost phenomenon? Is, is that for today? Like I said, was it a repeatable occurrence, or should we view it as a unique one-time event? Should we be praying for God to send wind and fire and the coming of the Spirit again to empower us? Here's my response. I do believe that the Pentecost phenomenon recorded in Acts chapter 2 was a unique event in God's plan. Therefore, I don't believe that we need to pray for God to send His Spirit to us again because as we already said, God's people already have His Spirit dwelling in us. Many scriptures say that. But having said that, I do believe that it's appropriate and even necessary for the people of God to have fresh experiences of God's power. Deeper levels of the Spirit's control in our lives. We can quibble over what the most accurate biblical term is for that. Revivals, fresh outpourings, anointings, spiritual renewals, awakenings, second blessings. For me, I'd probably stay away from spirit baptism because that term appears to describe a one-time occurrence at the moment someone trusts Christ. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13. But whatever we choose to call it, I think we need it. I need it. I know I need it. Many of us want to see spiritual awakening united again, ignited again, and spreading like wildfire in our land. Amen? You, you research it. You'll see that these fresh renewals of the Spirit, these awakenings have occurred many times down through the centuries. In North Africa, in Germany, in Wales, 120 years ago. In China, in Korea, in South America, sovereign movements of God that awaken many people to spiritual reality. Here in our own country, we've had what came to be known as the first great awakening back in the 1700s. Any of you there? Hope not. The second great, great awakening, 1857, and the years following that. Some of you, and I'm old enough to remember the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s, and the awakening that occurred then with Jesus people and Jesus music and afterglows where kids would stand up and testify and give the one-way sign. I remember hippies in bell-bottoms and tie-dyed t-shirts rolling in on skateboards and hearing about Jesus and getting saved and throwing away their drugs and getting all their music, all of their sex-saturated satanic music and throwing it in the big bonfire and Tears rolling down their face and lifting their hands in praise and worship of Jesus Christ. I remember that, do you? It's wild stuff. It's awesome. If you ask me if I want to see that again, I, I wouldn't hesitate to say, yeah, bring it on, Holy Spirit. I'm not sure what to call it. Revival, awakening, outpouring. Awaken us. Revive us again. Do in us and through us what we can't do for ourselves. Well, there's a lot of ways I could end this sermon, or I could go on for a long time, but I won't. But, uh, you know, just reminiscing about those days brought an old youth group song to my mind, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head all week. It takes me back to those Sunday night afterglows at the home of the Lankford family, where for some reason they let me come a few times, even though I was in junior high, I wasn't in high school yet. In my mind, I can still hear the voices, I can still see the glowing faces, I can still hear the music, I can still feel the passion. I'd probably tweak the lyrics a little bit now, knowing what I know, but the heart behind them is real. It went like this, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, He came in mighty fullness then. His witness through believers won the lost and multitudes were born again. The early Christians scattered o'er the world. They preached the gospel fearlessly. Though some were martyred and to lions hurled, they marched along in victory. Then in an age when darkness gripped the earth, the just shall live by faith was learned. The Holy Spirit gave the church new birth as Reformation fires burned. In later years, the great revivals came when saints would seek the Lord and pray. Oh, once again, we need that holy flame to meet the challenge of today. Come, Holy Spirit, dark is the hour. We need your fullness, your love, and your mighty power. Move now among us. Move now among us. Stir us, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, revive the church today. Do any of you want what I want? I want that. I really do. Before I die, 
I want to be part of that kind of an awakening for our country, for our city, for our church. I wonder how many of us need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in our own lives today. Would you bow your heads with me? Holy Spirit, I know that you already came. And we thank you for that day of Pentecost and that moment when you poured yourself out on those first Christians and did amazing things in them and through them. We believe that. But we live today, and it is a dark hour. And we pray that you would come again to our land, to our city, to our church. We know you're here, but come in your fullness, Lord, and awaken us, Holy Spirit. Revive us. Some of us are dry and parched. For some of us, it's been months or maybe years since we felt close to God. I imagine there's a few in the room who, Lord, you, you seem like a distant memory to them. They, they knew of you back in the day. It's been too long. Pour over us once again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you could use a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit in your life? Anybody? Anybody? Let's ask the Lord. You know, I don't think it's an accident that we're studying the book of Acts right now. Let's ask the Lord to give us that that would refresh our spirit and empower us. Wouldn't that be awesome? As we think about going out east and opening up a new campus whenever the Lord says it's time, you know, there's not a need for just another church on another corner doing church stuff. There's a need for an empowered, alive, refreshed people of God filled by the Spirit, right? Witnessing of Jesus boldly and living out the life He called us to. Let's be that kind of church.